Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this uh, joyous day, this auspicious day, when it is crowned with the glorious news that our Savior is alive, that he is not dead, he is risen just as he said. We recognize, O oh Lord God, how in the scriptures the grave could not hold its prey, that Christ came for this very purpose, that he might die laying down his life, and then having the authority to take it up again. That all of this took place according to the Scriptures. All of this took place according to your divine plan. All of this happened in accordance with an eternal covenant between God the Father, the Son, brought about through the work of God the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the work of your Spirit in our heart, and in our mind, and in our soul, to open us to the reality of, of what Jesus continues to do, that you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we give you thanks for these things, and we pray now that your Spirit would continue to open our heart and our mind, that we would understand your word, the meaning of this event, which has an eternal effect, that we might in all things bring glory to your name, and testify to the power of Christ and his resurrection to transform lives, to turn rebels into servants, to turn sinners into saints, to turn the disobedient into obedient and joyful servants of our risen King. For it is in Jesus' name, the name of our risen King, that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> In Luke's Gospel, we're going to pick up the narrative in, verse, in chapter 24, uh, the events of this uh, event that take place, this conversation that Jesus has with these two travelers on the road to Emmaus takes place in the afternoon, um, the later afternoon of Resurrection Sunday. We're told that on that very day, uh, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know all the things that have happened in there these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with, to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As I said, this conversation that Jesus has with these two travelers happens late in the afternoon on Resurrection Sunday. We're told that early at dawn on that day, the, some women went out to the tomb. There was Mary Magdalene, there was Joanna, the Mary, the, uh, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women went there. When they arrived, they had found that the stone had been rolled away and Jesus' body is missing. While they're pondering this, while they're struggling to make sense of these events, two angels appeared to the women and asked a very fundamental question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Just as he said, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on, and on the third day rise? And suddenly the women remembered this. They leave the tomb, they go tell the apostles and the rest of the disciples, says Luke, but to them, to the apostles and to the disciples, the story the women told them seemed to them like an idle tale, like nonsense. However, just in case what they might be saying is true, Luke tells us that Peter went to the tomb and he saw everything just as the women said. The tomb was empty. He sees the grave clothes lying by themselves. <laughs> and then Peter does something astounding. He marvels at this and then he goes home. He, he went home. This is where we pick up the story in Luke 24. Because like Peter, these two travelers on the way to Emmaus, they're going home. They know about the events that have taken place in the last several days. And so when grief fills your heart with lead, you go home. Home is where you go when you need peace and quiet. Home is where you go when you need time to think, space to ponder things, and maybe even to get some sleep. Home is where you go when you're trying to make sense of what sounds like nonsense. But now, while they're going home, they're also pondering this amazing bit of news from these women, that Jesus, they say, is alive. And they saw two angels who testified to that. So how can this be true? Dead people don't come back to life. But what if, what if Jesus is alive? 
What if the women are telling the truth? What if Jesus really is risen from the dead? He can't be. Can he? So this is the content, the back and forth taking place between Cleopas and his companion. Luke doesn't tell us the name of his walking companion. It could be his wife. It could be his brother. It could be another disciple, another follower of Jesus. We really don't know. What we do know is this, that as they were walking home, Luke says, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. All these things referring to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. His clearing of the temple. His arrest, his betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion. And now they're dealing with the rumors of his resurrection. And so these two travelers, Cleopas and his unnamed friend, more than likely are followers of Christ. They had heard him preach. They had seen him or at least heard of the miracles that he had performed. They cheered with the crowd as he entered Jerusalem last week. And they watched helplessly as the elders, the chief priests and scribes, handed Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. They wept bitter tears and mourned speechless as the Romans nailed his hands and feet to the cross They heard Jesus cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They heard him say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when Jesus gave up his spirit, when he breathed his last, when Jesus died, every dream they hoped he would fulfill from their perspective died with him. And so the events of Crucifixion Friday had left them perplexed. Perplexed in the same way you and I are, perhaps, when we try to solve Rubik's Cube. Or we make sense of recent violence against uh, Asian Americans, or the shootings in Colorado, or even more recently, more violence in Washington, D.C., in which another Capitol Hill policeman was killed. These kinds of events leave us perplexed. Cleopas and his friends then are his friend are so engrossed in conversation, talking about these things, about what they might mean. They are oblivious to the stranger who joins them and comes alongside them. And they are unaware of the stranger. While they're talking, they are unaware of the stranger until the stranger clears his throat and says, <clears throat> What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? That question makes them stop walking. Their faces are downcast. And judging by Cleopas' response, they react to the stranger the same way we would react if we were at the Ground Zero Memorial in Lower Manhattan and someone walks up to us and says, So what happened here? After an awkward silence, Cleopas asks the stranger, are you, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know what happened there in these days? Like, if you were living in a cave, don't you know about these things? 
You go online and uh, you look up the word irony in Webster's online dictionary, you'll find this definition. That irony has two formal uses. One is a, a kind of Socratic irony, a method of revealing an opponent's ignorance on a subject by pretending to be ignorant yourself and asking probing questions. The other refers to a dramatic irony, uh, an incompatibility between the situation in a drama and the words by the characters that only the audience can see. You use Socratic irony in a debate. And dramatic irony is what happens when the audience realizes that all of Romeo and Juliet's plans will go awry. So the conversation between Jesus, Cleopas, and his friend is an encounter that involves both Socratic and dramatic irony. We know it's Jesus talking to them, but they don't. Their eyes, we're told, were kept from recognizing him. Why? We don't know. Clearly, Cleopas and his friend are wrestling with grief. They're wrestling with disappointment. <clears throat> They're wrestling with melancholy. They're wrestling with heartache. Maybe Jesus asked that question. What is this conversation you're having? What things took place in Jerusalem? Maybe he's asking them that question in order to allow them to give voice to their emotions. Then maybe they, once they've poured out all the emotions that are in their heart, the fog would lift from their eyes and they would recognize him. I think there are times, I look back in my own life, there are times when I have been disappointed by God. When I've been let down by him, so I think I am blind to the reality of his presence. All I can see is what is before me. Everything else fades away. Maybe you've been in that moment when despair can create a fog so thick you don't recognize Jesus when he comes to comfort you. You don't see him in his word. You don't see him in the companionship of friends and the comfort and consolation they offer you by their presence. Sometimes grief, our grief, can cause us to treat Jesus like a total stranger who has no idea about all the things that have happened to us. And we accuse him, if not verbally, at least in our heart and in our thoughts, we accuse him of forsaking us at our moment of greatest need. At that moment, when our heartache is that strong, when it causes us to lose our way in the dark, Jesus comes to us because he alone knows how to lead us out of the darkness into the light. And that's what he's doing in this conversation with Cleopas and his friend. He is the light of the world, the one whom Isaiah calls the wonder of a counselor. And so ignoring the sarcasm of Cleopas's question, Jesus returns serve. What things? With this question, we move from dramatic irony to Socratic irony. Jesus knows everything that's happened. He's the principal character. He's the one to whom all those things happen. He is the one who helped with the Father orchestrate the very circumstances about which Cleopas and his friend are perplexed. He is the one who helps to orchestrate the very circumstances in which we will find ourselves at times perplexed and despairing and grieving. 
And he gives us an opportunity then to vent that heartache. That we might tell him what is on our heart. That Socratic irony, a method of revealing an opponent's ignorance by pretending to be ignorant yourself and asking probing questions. But something greater than irony is taking place here. When Jesus asks you a question, what things? A question like that is a means of grace. It's, it's his invitation to express to, for us to express what is truly in our heart. And so, knowing full well all the things that happened in Jerusalem, Jesus gives Cleopas permission to speak, to air out all of the pain that is wreaking havoc in his heart. And that is a defining moment in our relationship with him. That when Jesus gives us permission to speak, to answer the question, what things? Knowing that he knows what those things are. It's a defining moment. Will we confess those things or we will hold them back? And so in response to Jesus' question, what things? Cleopas lays out for him all of the events that had transpired, all of their hopes. And they end in verse 24 with the story about the women and Peter and the others going to the tomb. Some of those, he said, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Just sit on that for a moment and ponder to whom Cleopas is saying that. But him they did not see. Just as Cleopas does not see and does not recognize Jesus in front of him, nor does his companion. And ultimately, I think the reason why they don't recognize him and they are kept from recognizing him is because faith comes not by seeing, but by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Jesus begins the process of revelation by rebuking them gently. O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, he says, Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? The answer to that question is yes, of course. It was necessary. But just, just in case Cleopas and his friend don't get it, well, Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus then begins with Moses and all the prophets and he interprets in them all the scriptures pertaining to himself. And the more Jesus talked, the more the Holy Spirit opened the heart and the mind of Cleopas and his friend. And only after Jesus vanished from their sight, after they had a meal with him, did the men realize what had taken place. Did our hearts not burn within us, they asked, when he opened up the scriptures to us. The more Jesus interpreted the scripture to them, the more his word burned away every doubt, every uncertainty, every skeptical notion about his mission, including his death and resurrection. So here's where we come to the importance of the resurrection. Jesus doesn't defend his resurrection by saying, fellas, look at the scars. Want to see this, the pierced in my side? Want to see... The scars on my back, 
He doesn't give them visible proof. He gives them His Word. He speaks to them. And He shows them from the Scripture all of the things that took place had to take place. There is no need to defend the historical validity or the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's not a matter of faith, per se. It's a matter of historical fact. The shoe is on the other foot. Those who deny that Jesus rose from the dead have to come forward and produce the evidence that he did not rise from the dead. You think about the fact that scoffers for over 2,000 years have scoffed at and denied the historical validity of Christ's resurrection. And to date, no one has provided any evidence to prove it to be a hoax. And so when Jesus engages these two men, Cleopas and his friend, in conversation about the reality of his resurrection, knowing that faith is not a matter of sight but of hearing, he gives them what they need, which is the Scripture. That Jesus is alive, that he is risen, just as he said. Now you either believe this or you don't. Those who know he is alive understand That our faith in the resurrection is not a blind faith. It's not a leap in the dark. It's not a leap from one cliff to to the other, hoping that when we land on the other side, we'll find hard, firm ground. Our faith is not blind, because blind faith relies upon something that is unreliable. It might be true, it might not, but you won't know until you leap. Our faith is based on something, someone who is completely reliable. That's why Jesus engages Cleopas and his friend in conversation, because he's pointing them to the source of their faith, which is the Scripture, which is the Word of God itself. And Jesus himself said, if you don't believe what I'm saying, then at least open your eyes and see what I've done. Look at the works I have done. Talk to the eyewitnesses. There's a reason why Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, talks about how Jesus appeared to 500 of the disciples. And then Paul says, some of them are still alive. Meaning, go talk to them. They'll tell you. We saw him. 40 days after the resurrection, he was there. We walked with him. We talked with him. We ate with him. So the reality of Jesus' resurrection is not based on a blind faith, but on a historical reality. Trusting faith, you understand, is not based on our best guess or even our best hope that it might be true. It believes that God is true because His Word is true. And that He is working around us all the time. And if we don't see or cannot see where God is working, the fault lies not with him, but with us. Him they did not see. Their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. Because trusting faith is based on trusted evidence, not blind hope. Trusting faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Sometimes Jesus keeps us from recognizing him because we only know half the story. And it takes a humility to allow his word to flow into our heart 
This is why Jesus leads Cleopas on his, and his friend on what had to be the most amazing Bible study you could ever imagine. I mean, they didn't know it was Jesus, but they must have thought, this guy knows his stuff. It's like, we don't know where he came from, but maybe he sounds a little like someone we know. They were kept, perhaps, from recognizing him until they had heard all of the scriptures interpreted in regard to who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Sometimes we are kept from recognizing Jesus until he opens our eyes, and especially the eyes of our heart. But before that happens, before Jesus opens the eyes of our heart, we must first understand what the Bible says about Jesus. I think so many people dismiss the resurrection as a fairy tale because they really haven't investigated. It sounds so outrageous. How does a, a dead man get out of a tomb after being laid in that tomb for three days? And it's interesting, too, that people who dismiss the resurrection kind of scoff at it without giving any thought to the things that they themselves believe about the world but have not truly investigated either. So the first thing we must do if we are to have our eyes open is understand what the Bible says about Jesus. That's why Jesus leads them on this tremendous Bible study about himself from Moses and all the prophets. To understand that the true mission of Jesus from Cleopas and his friend's perspective was not to defeat Rome, not to establish the kingdom of God on earth, but he came to establish another kingdom, a kingdom that would be built in the hearts of men and women, but that in order to enter this kingdom, one is, not one is not born physically into a particular ethnic group, but one must be spiritually born again by faith in Christ into this kingdom. And that, that this kingdom requires, in addition to the spiritual rebirth, sin being forgiven, sin being atoned for, sin being paid for. Because in order to enter into the very presence of the almighty, holy God, the veil that divided the, the innermost part of the, uh, the innermost part of the sanctuary, the temple, to the holy of holies, that had to be ripped in half so that we could have full and confident access into the very presence of God. That Jesus came then to redeem us from a slavery to a kingdom even greater than that of Rome. Any earthly kingdom. He came to save us from our slavery to sin, to set us free, as Paul would say, from following the course of this world, from following the rule of the prince of the power of the air. But this freedom requires a payment of a redemption price, and Jesus paid that price with his life. He had to die. This is what he's telling Cleopas and his friend. He had to die. The Messiah had to die because we needed a substitute to die in our place. He had to rise from the dead, because only by rising from the dead would we know that God the Father accepted his death as the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. So his death satisfies God's just wrath against us for our sin. His blood removes forever the stain of sin that separated us from God. His resurrection... Well, that's God's guarantee 
that he has accepted Christ's death as our substitute. So before you dismiss the resurrection of Christ, before your eyes can be opened to recognize him, you have to understand what the Bible says about him. But then the next thing that needs to happen is that before we can open our hearts to Jesus, he must open our heart to his word. See, after Jesus opened Cleopas' heart to the word, that's when Cleopas, seeing Jesus is going to go farther along, says, no, why don't you stop for the night and have a meal with us? And so he invites Jesus to come to his home, to eat and to rest. And Jesus will enter into the home and the heart of anyone who is willing to entertain him. And did you notice, when they sit at table, it's Cleopas' house we're going to assume. He should be the one breaking the bread. He should be the one serving the meal. But in a dramatic reversal, and in something very similar to what Jesus did on the, last, on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus, Luke says, took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And immediately their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanishes from their sight. Now, we may never know why Jesus waited until that moment to open their eyes and to recognize him. This much we do know that we are kept from recognizing Jesus until he opens our eyes, until we see the bread broken and him giving it to us. Maybe in that moment, as he extended his arms, they saw something. And at that moment, faith became sight. What they heard was now confirmed by what they saw not the other way around. Before we can open our heart to Jesus, he must open our heart with his word, and then we see. As soon as they realize it's Jesus, and they say, did not our hearts burn within us while he spoke to us and opened up the scriptures to us, these two men who had traveled all day, they decided, you know what? This news is too good to keep to ourselves. Let's go back to Jerusalem, seven miles at night, seven miles at night, no flashlight, maybe they had a lantern, it's dark, but they had to tell somebody, they had to find the apostles, and they had to tell them, he is alive, he is risen, just as he said, and so these two men, whom we meet on the road, whose faces are sad, whose hearts are downcast. That day ends as they had not ever anticipated it would, with a joyful certainty that Christ is risen. And so when we wrestle with disappointment, and we feel that life is like the time between Crucifixion Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and we are, we're perplexed, and we're in despair, and we look for Jesus, but him we do not see. We can see him in his word. And the scriptures encourage us to have hope in him. And so when the darkness descends, and we feel in that moment our heart losing its grip on hope, 
then and especially then, we must start a conversation with our soul about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Sometimes God allows us to lose our way in the dark so that he can show us the way home at dawn. Sometimes we're in the midst of the darkness, a light surprises. And that's Jesus who comes alongside us and he asks, what is this conversation you're holding with yourself as you walk? You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus graciously encounters us with his presence, with his word, his word which reminds us of his presence, his word, Lord God, which he uses and your spirit uses to open our heart and our mind to understand and to have hope and to trust. Speak to us now, Lord God, as we come to our time of communion, that as we once again sit at table and eat the bread and drink the cup, we would enjoy that sweet fellowship in the hope and promise of a greater and further and far more satisfying fellowship when we sit down at this table in eternity and enjoy it with you forever. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.